assist with it. You know, don't expect it to be necessarily quick or easy results, but if you're willing to invest the time and effort, and you're willing to engage with the community around it, you can see these fantastic things can take place. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. In this week's episode, we speak to George Osborne, not that one, who is head of campaigns and communications for Yuki, the video games industry trade body, who we talk to about the role of games in society, as well as the increasing trend of charities looking to gaming as a source of fundraising and awareness. And as a long-time gamer, uh, long-in-the-tooth gamer, I guess, myself, this was a fascinating discussion, I think, about the value of gaming, a pastime that I still often feel the need to justify, despite its shift from the bedroom to the living room and industry read of the news comparable to Hollywood's biggest blockbusters. So now we're going to talk about tech news. And Paul, you shared an article with me from music site Pitchfork about the woes of being addicted to streaming. And you wanted to say a bit more about this. Yeah, and I will, we'll point towards it in the, in the show notes. We'd be really interested to hear from any one of our listeners that, um, that loves music. So um, this was a really interesting and, and a very long read. Um, and I want to find some time to actually explore it and write about it in a bit more detail because it prompted something that we've been discussing for a little while, which is a little bit about how our lives, our online lives, are, are influenced by algorithms and how I feel that a bit of a need to push back against that at the moment. Um, and I think we've both formed and built businesses around the opportunity that digital provides. Um, but, you know, there's a the, the democrat, so stuff like democratised access to information, there's uh, the role it plays in discovery for both of us, I think, and connectivity to people and all those sorts of things that's, that are really, really wonderful. And it's made the world seem smaller and a bit more accessible. You know, but we, we've all got access to that. But it's more often than not a very curated lens that we're now looking through. So where Twitter started for me as, as, as a voyage of discovery, now it's one of slightly introspection and echo chamber I think and that started to color uh, our perceptions of topics and ideas and, and things like that you only need to look at you know Brexit as an example where my timeline told me it was going to be fine nobody was voting for Brexit and then lo and behold there you go and you know the the absolute horror at the moment of Partygate but still you know people still keep getting away with it um, and I think it's that echo chamber of sort of like-minded sentiment and people like you like this content and you see all that stuff. Um, so I think the reasons we're attracted to these platforms in the first place is at risk. And I read this article and I just thought, I don't want this to be the same for music. I don't want to be guided by algorithms. I still want that voyage of discovery. I want to find new things. It's limiting for us as, as, as users. It creates that echo chamber within Spotify. So we're all listening to the same stuff. There's a wonderful point in the article about Pavement and how one of their like less known songs, a B-side from one of the like some odd compilation or something is the number one song on Spotify because it fits a sort of a more softer, less aggressive style of music. That means that Spotify serves it up more times in playlists to, to people. So actually the most popular Pavement song on Spotify is not a reflection of, of, of them as a band. It's quite quite funny. Um, so I love it. I, you know, I do love it. It's, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful platform, but I also love record shops. I love vinyl. I love walking into a shop and saying, what are you playing now? Can I buy a copy? 
Um, so I, it was just this sort of sense, I think, that I had of um, exploring this idea around not letting our lives be as governed by the algorithms and try and find what more ways to push back. So I don't know whether that resonates with, with you. I hope it resonates with our listeners. But yeah, what do you think? You Did you read the article? Yeah, I did read it. And it made me think about when I first started finding out more about music when I was a teenager. And of course, that wasn't guided by the algorithms because, well, um, that was a prehistoric times because I really am that old so I remember (laughs) CDs uh, maybe even vinyl but I remember it being this really fun voyage of discovery and it was part of how I guess I crafted my identity just finding about about all these different things and reading the enemy every week and melody maker and that was part of the fun of it and it does feel like a bit of a mixed blessing on on the one hand Perhaps it is nice to have a bit of curation of music out there and signposting towards things which might interest you based on what you listen to. But at the same time, it just all feels very convenient, doesn't it? And I'm suspicious of things which are too slick and too convenient. Yeah, I think about I think I think it's absolutely right. And I think there's um there was something in there as well that they they talked about these three sort of types of, of listeners, passive, auxiliary and intentional. So the passive listener is sort of, we just absorb music like oxygen. Um, they talk about it being as it's, is, is music playing or is it not playing? I don't really sure. I'm not really sure. It's just sort of in the background. There's auxiliary where it's more, um, you know, music, in, it, they say music enhances a primary experience. So um, uh, listen, uh, listening listening to music alongside a visual stimulus. So, you know, how Ethan, my son, listens to music, watching TikTok, for example. And then there's the intentional user and uh, listener. And I think that's probably you and me, which is, you know, we go out of our way to find and listen to music. Listening to music is a pleasure in itself. You know, that's exactly how you've just described how it, how it used to be. Um, and I sort of finished that 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 um, definition by saying music is is for these people is life, and I think that's it. And I don't feel that I want to sort of give that up. So I think over the next few episodes, I might just share a few things about you know where where I can go or where people can go to to sort of fight against this, I guess. And like you said, uh, Enemy and Melody Maker are long gone. Enemy is still online. It's not great, but it's still online. Um, I, I read um, and have a subscription to Uncut magazine and have had for the last 20 years or so. Um, and that's where I find a lot of stuff. Six Music is a great place. But Pitchfork itself, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a good range of articles on there that take you down little rabbit holes. Um, but I just thought I'd, I'd finish on this, this topic by um, uh, the, the, the sort of the final bit from the article, which I think is, is a lovely sentiment. But it says, when music is so abundant and our attention is scarce, there's power in adding intent, more intention to your listening diet, more chaos, more risk. The thrill in finding music that's wired to your singular life is, that, is not that thousands of other people have found the same thing. It's that the music becomes something confounding and unique, a true reflection of where you are and where you've been. The beauty of the algorithm of your mind is that it makes perfect sense to no one but yourself. So that's that. That's how I feel about that one. <laughs> and so you also, um, well, rather bravely a, f- a few weeks ago, we highlighted the article that you'd written yourself, the, the blog post that you'd written yourself about being a, a, a woman of colour in tech. And, and you wanted to highlight uh, an article, um, no, sorry, a, a report about women of colour in the workplace run, run from the, the Runnymede Trust. Yeah, so a brilliant new report just came out 
yesterday, in fact, from uh, Running Me Trust in uh, partnership with the Fawcett Society. It's called Broken Ladders, and it's all about the experiences of women of colour in the workplace. Some really shocking stats in this, uh, really, really worrying things. So 75% of women of colour have experienced racism at work. 61% have changed themselves to fit in. So whether that's modifying um, how they talk, how they dress, all those different ways in which people uh, shift their behaviour in environments where they don't feel safe or accepted. So it's really worth reading this report and finding out about the experiences of women of of colour and what it's like to be one of them in the workplace. And it's also a very, very helpful guide within the report for employers, which is all about what people can do differently. Uh, So there were three things that really stood out for me. Firstly, um, there was some advice about offering women of colour the chance to have stay interviews. So rather than wait until the exit interview when people may finally tell you for the very first time, actually, I'm I'm leaving because I I don't feel safe here and I've experienced racism in the workplace. Why not talk to people um, at various intervals and just find out how are things for them? How's it going? Do you feel accepted here? Do you feel that, that you belong? And I think that's a really great idea. The report also talks about the toll that microaggressions and racism take on people of colour. And I can absolutely relate to that. And it recommends offering mental health support, which is really, really good practice. Everyone should be doing that anyway, especially at this stage in the pandemic. So that's another piece of of, um, advice, which I think is very helpful. It's something all leaders need to be looking at. And then finally, expanding your template of leadership as an organisation. So rather than seeing leadership as this quite narrow thing, uh, which is is focused on, you know, perhaps quite historic ideas of what a leader looked like, um, thinking about how you can create that culture where having having difference is valued and then thinking about well what does this mean for for leadership what does this mean for the kinds of people uh, who should be leaders and how can we uh, foster them and uh, create a pipeline of them and and show that leadership is is something that's perhaps much more open uh, and democratic than people may perceive it to be so well worth reading and we'll put the link to that in the show notes Definitely. And I know someone straight away who I'm going to share it with, not necessarily because um, of a conversation that I had about um, about women of colour, but it certainly will resonate with them and get them, uh, help them to think about how they can have a really uh, clear and informed conversation about diversity of all sorts in their workplace where um, they're struggling at the moment to find um allies I guess or at least a a sort of a space within small organization where it's very very hard to get these types of conversations going so I think that'll be a very useful resource for them to have a look at. Now for our conversation with George Osborne Head of Campaigns and Communications for Yuki. George Osborne is the Head of Campaigns and Communications for Yuki, the UK video game industry trade body. He is the co-chair of the video games industry charity Games Aid and represents UK on the board of the UK Age Rating Authority, the Video Standards Council VSC. He was named one of Games Industry Business Future 100 Talents in 2018, was listed in MVC's 30 Under 30 in 2019 and has served as a BAFTA Games Award judge on three occasions. Welcome to Starts at the Top, George. 
Thank you so much for having me along. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, thanks for coming on. So, George, just to um, introduce this uh, this topic, we had a few we had a chat a few weeks back about you coming onto the podcast, and I came out to you as a gamer. Um, and having been a gamer since I bought my first ZX Spectrum in the eighties, I've had multiple gaming consoles ever since. But I always feel slightly apologetic when I admit to playing games. And, and now in my forties, I still see still feel the need to whisper it a little bit quietly. But I've learned so much from the enjoyment of playing games and the mechanics of games and gaming. You mentioned that the industry itself feels a little bit of this need to justify its existence. So can you tell us a bit more about this and some of the numbers that say, Paul, you are valid as a gamer and so are we all? Well, I think the most important number is about the number of people who actually play in the UK. I think when it comes to people who play games, there's a bit of a stereotype. I think it tends to be, frankly speaking, this is me talking as a boy who used to play video games in his bedroom. It's boys in bedrooms playing it with their headsets on and nothing else. But in the UK, we think it's about 37 million people across the country who actually play games. Because when you start looking at the wide breadth of games that are out there, you realize that so many people are playing them without really thinking about it. You know, the classic example at the moment is Wordle. You know, so many people have talked to me about the fact that they're playing Wordle every day. And I go, oh, so you're into video games. And they're like, sorry, what do you mean? No, 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 I'm, I'm just playing Wordle. And it's like, well, it's interactive entertainment, right? Um, you play it on your phone. It's a game. Uh, you form little communities around it. You know, you jump into your WhatsApp groups and you ask how you're doing, a lot like people who love any other kind of game do. And then people go, oh, yeah, actually, you're completely right. And so when you actually look at the size of the market in terms of the number of people who play, when you look at the demographics, when you sort of start taking those things into account, you realize, no, 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 games is not just something for, for boys in their bedrooms. The gender splits 50-50. You know, in terms of the average age of a player in the UK, you're talking about 35. And if you're talking the UK consumer market, you know, we just recently released some research that showed that this year it hit £7.16 billion. So that was for, for 2021. Uh, and that's a new record total, even after the pandemic peak. And it was driven by a huge number of people continuing to buy games consoles. So the market just keeps on getting bigger and bigger. And so I think when you're talking about that point about, you know, should I feel valid? Should I should I feel as if this is a major thing that we should be taking seriously? I think 100% yes. And I think as the industry, you know, we've often had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. You know, we're used to the conversations. I'm, I'm very much used to it as well. Like. Um, I use sort of my mum as a test for whether or not games industry stuff has cut through. And last week I received a text from her just, uh, it was about 6, 6.25 or something. And the BBC News was obviously doing a bit from the BAFTAs. And my mum was like, the BAFTAs are on the news, George. Are you at the BAFTAs? And I was like, I, I actually am, mum. This is, this is very, very interesting. But I think when it comes down to it, for so long, you know, society, culture has looked at games and not really looked at it with that kind of thing about saying it, it's it, in itself valid. And as a result of that, so many people in the industry have been a bit like, well, do I feel like what I'm doing is relevant if, you know, my nearest and dearest are asking what I'm doing? But I think now that we're getting to the point where the majority of people in this country play, where so much of what our sort of modern culture and what our modern language is even shaped by games, you start to see this point where people should actually be thinking, yeah, you know what, this is more than valid for me to be doing. And you, we talked about the, the sort of the, the synergy there and, and, and it being linked to the BAFTAs, for instance, you know, the, the synergy there between um, games and the film industry or even the television industry. And a lot of the 
pushback I guess I have from what I give myself or other people give me is the time that you need to spend on some of these games you know there's a game I'm playing at the moment I'm probably about 80 hours in across the course of I don't know two or three months worth of play and I'm barely scratching the surface of it so there's hours and hours and hours pouring into this game but nobody would think twice about challenging whether I watch four episodes of EastEnders a week for example so you you gave some ideas uh, around that as well you know the difference or the different perception i think of games versus those other entertainment mediums yeah and I, I think there's two really interesting points there i think the first is this idea of um value for money entertainment you know being able to get hours and hours and hours of entertainment out of a product that you paid for in almost every single other walk of life that's seen as a positive but when it comes to a game it's like oh is that a good thing is that a bad thing and it's like well you know, especially if we're talking about our current cost of living crisis, the idea that that game that you buy for maybe 40 or 50 pounds lasting you for 80 to 100 hours, you know, that's that's really good value at a time when, when money's going to be pretty tight. But I think more broadly, though, and I think going into that point about the cultural value, you know, I, I always like to refer back to um, there's basically a service called Game Track, which is run by Ipsos Mori, and it, it looks at data across Europe. And, you know, it looks at the amount of time that the average person across Europe spends on different activities. And so you look at social media, and the average is about 14 hours. You look at TV, it's about 22 hours. And then you look at games, and people go, oh, it's going to be big. It's going to be huge. It's going to be massive. It's nine and a half hours, right? So they're spending less time on games than they are on everything else. Because, you know, I think one of the key things about games as a creative activity is something that you do in terms of your pastime. It's rare for you to play a game where you're passive. It's something that you're actively involved in. It's something that you're engaged in. So these experiences might take up, you know, hours and hours of your life, but they're probably stretched over a longer period of time because the actual activity of engaging with a game is much more intensive than, say, engaging with film or TV because it's passive. You sit there, you watch it, you, you know, you lie back and relax. Whereas if you've been playing Elden Ring recently, I haven't been because goodness me, that's going to get my heart rate running. Um, you know, the level of activity to go and beat one of those bosses, it's, it's the kind of thing that after an hour or so, you're going to be thinking, mm, yeah, definitely need a bit of a break from this. So actually, when it comes to games and about the amount of time that people are spending on them, I think there can be a bit of a misconception about how much time people are spending, especially when, again, you throw into the mix those mobile games. You know, how long does it take you to do your daily Wordle? You know, it's five minutes or so. And for a lot of people, that's that's their experience of playing games. It's five minutes on Wordle. It's jumping on Candy Crush Saga when you're on the tube. You know, it's checking in on your Animal Crossing island for, for 20 minutes a day, you know, just going and, and tidying some things up. And I think that's really important when understanding games. They're not this single monolithic thing that's only shaped by you know, a couple of very, very big games which have a certain way of operating. It's this enormous, broad creative industry with a huge number of experiences. And I think that that really changes how you can see them and how much time, especially, you're spending on them. It's really interesting. So, Zoe, do you play Wordle? I don't, actually. I, but I know that a lot of charity CEOs seem to be playing it at the moment. There's a lot of them uh, sharing what they've got every morning on Twitter. So it's really kind of got that cut through, hasn't it? Yeah, totally. And I think it, it's a great one for me, I think, as well. You know, in terms of my job, a lot of the time I'm trying to I'm trying to act as the bridge. I'm trying to be the person who says, I'm, I've loved games my whole life. You know, it's it's an industry that I feel genuine passion and affinity for. It's given me so much in terms of the life that I live. You know, I'm, I'm looking at my career so far. I wouldn't have it without games. I wouldn't 
have my own place. You know, I wouldn't be living in sort of, you know, a, a relative feeling of comfort and happiness without the support of this industry. But I also know it's a bit of a closed shop. I know that if you don't play games or haven't played games, especially when you're younger, you can look at a controller and your instant fear feeling is exclusion or fear. And you start going, oh, you know what? This isn't for me. And not only when you start saying this isn't for me, it's not just that initial barrier. It then leads to a whole load of problems further down the line. Because as we all know, in other parts of our life, the moment you start feeling afraid of something, you don't want to engage with it, you know, and you start worrying more about it. Whereas something like Wordle, I think you can see the appeal of it. You know, you can understand, oh, yeah, it's just this little fun thing that people do on a daily basis. And when they're sharing it in particular, you start seeing that value around games, which is community. You know, there's a huge amount of value in terms of the industry where people don't just feel engaged in the game because they're enjoying it themselves and they're experiencing it themselves, but they're able to go to people, oh, you know, today's word or got it in five. I was feeling a bit nervous, but I got it there. Whereas someone else is going, got it in five? I got it in three. It was, a, it was an absolute doddle. You know, I, I, I don't understand what you were worrying about. Um, but it kind of keeps that social conversation going. And that, that experience led conversation is something you maybe don't fully get with other, other creative mediums. So it's really interesting to see that, that going mainstream at the moment. Mm, it's a big shift in behaviour, isn't it? Um, and picking up on a bit of a theme that you were talking about that you sort of alluding to uh, inclusion, um, how is that playing itself out within gaming at the moment? Because obviously it's such a live debate in the charity sector, how might we be more inclusive? How is all of that kind of happening within within gaming? I mean, there's sort of, you know, special interest communities, people with lived experience. What trends have you seen? It's really, really interesting, actually, what, what's going on within the industry, because, you know, there's, there's a couple of different elements to it. So I'll talk about in industry itself first and about the makeup of the workforce. And one of the things that we've been doing over the last few years at UK is we've been running uh, censuses of our workforce, where, which is built upon the national census question set, but adds in additional questions about working practices. So we've, we've done this twice and our most recent one uh, in terms of 2021, which is when we did the field work, but we, we released it fairly recently. You know, it was over 3,600 people in the sector and the things it revealed, you know, there were some things in there that frankly challenging difficult for us to, to to look at and go, we need to do better on this, you know. So for example, in terms of our BAME representation, you know, BAME wise, the games industry is in line with the national average. But when it comes to black representation, we're well down. When you look at something like the number of women in the industry, it's not as low as people think. It's actually in line with film and TV, but at 30%, it's still way too low. And when you look at things like class representation, you know, we've got the distinction of, I think, being the fifth poshest profession in the country. You know, actually in terms of social class, you have to be incredibly well-educated to work in games. About 82% have at least an undergraduate degree. And the inequalities that are built into the education system means that the kinds of people who come and work in games who've got that sort of qualification are naturally drawn from a particular social class. But there were real positives. So there were some things in there that really stood out as interesting things. You know, it's like our workforce, you are five or six times more likely to be trans and working in the games industry than within the national working age population. In terms of LGBTQ+, uh, nearly a quarter of the workforce identifies as LGBTQ+, which is more than double the national average. Um, and so you have some really interesting makeup there, but it, getting all of that data has meant we can now have real conversations about what are the most effective interventions? You know, how can we make sure that we're working more effectively with schools and in the city areas and, and rural areas where, you know, you're looking at things like 
you know, various different intersectional elements of that and saying, how can we get those people into the industry? And similarly, that's then helped spark the debate within the sector itself. So you have a load of different representation groups representing different interests. You know, you have people like out making games, celebrating the LGBTQ plus community, black girl gamers, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty self-explanatory, but a fantastic community there where they're both advocating within the industry itself and also running their own basically consumer-facing communities to go and talk to people. Um, and I think one of the key things there is that because games are all about agency, they're all about putting you in control, I think one of the things is, is that it makes communities around games really vociferous in a, in a way that can sometimes be challenging, especially if they, they, they go into some of the more darker areas of the internet. But on the positive side, where you've got really positive engagement from these advocate groups who are looking to make sure that their communities are better represented, they're the kinds of people who can really push games makers into saying, you know what, let's think about our character creator screen. How can we make this more representative? How can we include things like player pronouns within games? You know, and, and those kinds of changes are starting to really filter through. So it's it's a really interesting, difficult debate because we can only do so much. You know, I think one of the real challenges around any of these debates is what can an industry do? versus what needs to happen at a much larger societal level. But I think the industry has really sort of said to itself, we understand that societal level needs further work that we might not be able to help out with, but there's no excuse for us not doing absolutely everything we possibly can at the industry level to show to the wider world that this needs to be done. So yeah, especially in the UK, I know it's something we've, we've really been prioritising and pushing on with. And with some of those groups that are advocating for people with lived experience, would they also be looking at things like bias and where that may potentially get built into games? I'm not saying it does all the time at all, um, but is that something that you're also looking at as well? Yeah, definitely, actually. Um, so in terms of Alongside our census, we have an industry pledge, uh, which is called Raise the Game, uh, which over 200 companies have signed up to. And th there's three elements to it. But, you know, the first is about building inclusive workplaces. The second is about making sure that we have um, inclusive hiring practices and processes to get more people into the industry from a wider variety of backgrounds. But the third is about making sure that games are representative in of themselves. You know, so making sure that when you're looking across all kinds of different games, that you can get more lived experiences and more varieties of experience into a game so that people feel represented. So when they're looking at the latest AAA blockbuster, it is not a shaven-headed white man who is leading the way heroically from the front. You're looking much more at the kind of, well, what's Aloy doing in terms of Horizon Forbidden West, for example? You know, can we make sure that we have Ellie from The Last of Us, you know, which is, I think, a fascinating example where one of the biggest video games franchises in the world made the decision to have a bi woman as its lead character in terms of you know the lead player within within a narrative experience think about that within the context of tv or film you know you still see a lot of leading men over leading women and even there so you've got some really interesting stories in there but then in terms of just the actual experience of playing games and the actual experience of taking part and participating you know one of the things that the industry does account for hugely is about accessibility you know thinking about players who might be for example everything ranging from colorblind and making sure that the way that games are designed account for them through to players who have limitations in terms of their motion so you know there's a like likes of xbox who works with the charity special effect to create a special controller for people who may have limited mobility to allow them to remap the controller so they can play all of the games they love but in a way that actually works for them so i think the industry is getting much better for accounting for those things both 
in terms of the way that games are made, but also on the more cultural side in terms of storytelling and making sure that, you know, looking at different ways of telling stories that it doesn't actually exclude people's lived experiences. So it's an area that's still developing and, and there's still loads of room to push forwards on this. But I think, especially with the industry in terms of the last few years, that, that, that does feel like there's been real sort of genuine progress in terms of people thinking much more about this. And, and it's a real positive because by doing that, we can widen the people who come into making games and make the industry much, much more relevant to everyone at large. I guess the other thing to just touch on there is um, some of the big stories that have come out over the past two or three years in particular around those AAA titles, those big studios that um, have come under a lot of pressure and a lot of fire for um, putting their, their their staff employees under undue pressure to actually get the games completed. And we've seen a couple of absolutely disastrous launches of games because it just wasn't ready to, to, to go. And the pressure on games companies to... Um, we just saw another big AAA title. What was it? Um, the new Zelda game, for example, has just been delayed into next year. Thank God, because I've just not got the time to play it at the moment. So um, the, the pressure on in, uh, on the industry to, to sort of self-regulate around these fairly hefty issues of, of, uh, of, of bullying and working conditions and things like that as well. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting as well is you're starting to see differences between the way the sector operates in different parts of the world. So, you know, looking at the UK, one, one of the really interesting things in terms of the census is, is we looked into a lot of these questions. And, you know, for example, like it's something like 85% of people in the UK games industry are working a sub 40 hour week. You know, the vast majority in terms of the UK games industry are working pretty usual working hours with, with a, a, a subsection of up to about 50 hours. And then there's a very small number is about three, three percent or so who are, we're, we're talking about those kind of crunch conditions. And at the same time, when, when people talk about their attitudes towards industry, you know, 83% of people were talking about the workplace, taking bullying and harassment seriously and being an inclusive place to work. And, and this was from that, that sample of about 3000 odd. But what we see is that's not consistent around the world. You know, I think in terms of the UK, you see things about the fact that, frankly, we can't pay as much money as some of the biggest companies in the world are going to pay in other places. So we need to offer something else. And I think in general, the UK industry is kind of settled into, well, if we can offer a more livable working life where you can enjoy a better work-life balance where you can feel as if you're not going to be pushed to the limit every single working day and you know you can log off at 5 five thirty, and actually finish your working day then that will mean that talent who might want to go elsewhere in terms of looking at salary might look at the UK and go actually this is a nice place place to work there's a nice friendly community here and even though they take the creation of games really seriously they're not going to push things too far on and so I, I think it's really actually important for us and you know it's something that we talk a lot about at Yuki as well you know in terms of the way that we work that's not what we want as an industry you know we know that we are in a pretty competitive environment for talent and we need talent from all backgrounds it's not just coders it's artists it's writers it's marketers so if we're going to do that we need to build a workplace where people feel valued where people feel they're not going to get burnt out and i think games companies are, are getting better at doing that in the uk but it might not necessarily be universal everywhere and that's something that we as an industry need to work on yeah i mean it's really interesting isn't it that um it's such a it's such a, an open conversation as well it's 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 right out there in the public domain as a, an issue that's got to be challenged we also talked about um, the resilience of the industry during the, the disruption of the pandemic. And um, 
you talked about the, the the divide between people who are working in offices and people that are working from home, and, and there was a huge stat that you shared with me. Yeah, it, it, it was really interesting in terms of the way the pandemic has shaped the making of games. So, you know, pre-pandemic, and this again comes from the census, um, it was about 66% of people were reporting that they worked full-time in an office, um, which, you know, I mean, it's, that's still an interesting stat. There's quite a lot of people there who, who weren't necessarily working full-time, working remote. But what we found was that when you then looked at what people were saying was their preference for the future, post-pandemic, only 10% were saying that they wanted to work full-time in the office. So basically 56% of the workforce has shifted from being, I'm full-time in an office to being like, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to work in a, a sort of a mixed arrangement. And I think one of the biggest drivers of that is the fact that the games industry was relatively relatively unaffected by the pandemic. So we did some research shortly after the first lockdown where companies reported that their productivity was about 80% compared to usual. So it was impacted, things were slowed down. And part of the reason I think why we're starting to see a number of games being delayed, like for example, the new Zelda is game production cycles were affected by the pandemic that that impact in terms of productivity has fed through and as a result of that you saw a lot of games delayed in 2021 and you're seeing some delayed in 2022 because games take a long time to make but for the most part you're comparing a drop in productivity of 20 percent versus the complete collapse of film theater tv because in the immediate aftermath of the first lockdown they had to close they had no choice you know the law literally prevented them from carrying on and so i think one of the things there was they had to go and work out how they stayed afloat how they survived and you know some of the partners that we work with across the creative industries did enormously fantastic work in terms of supporting those those people whereas for people in the games industry i think they worked out you know what i can actually carry on making games from my home you know it, it's almost you know, I, I don't think the the sort of the idea of the bedroom coder had solely gone away. In fact, there had been a bit of a revival in the last 10 years with the democratization of development and development tools. But I think with so many big companies moving to work from home and so many people realizing I could start a job with a major company that's hours and hours away, but I could be in, embedded straight away with my colleagues. I think it's meant that people have looked at the sort of return to work and gone, I can see there's a value of a joint approach popping into the office once or twice a week, maybe maybe once in a while to go and meet my colleagues and go and work with people, especially on some of the trickier issues. But I think they've also looked at it and gone, but I was able to do my job from home. I was able to do really good work from home. I achieved my goals or I achieved most of those and remained connected with people. So why not continue? And I think that actually is really healthy for games, but I think it's also healthy for wider society. You know, it's going to make for a much, much more inclusive working environment where everything from people who need more flexibility, working mums, for example, through to people who extra flexibility is just enormously important, such as people with, with disabilities, for example, this gives the foundation to make sure that they are more involved and more included within society. And there are fewer excuses, I think, in the long run. So I think it's great for games, but I think it's also really important in wider society too. It'd be really interesting when you see the, the results of the next couple of censuses, censuses, censuses. Yeah. Um, but it'd be nice to see, see how that, that shift helps the, the inclusion, um, the inclusivity point that you made, because those people who um, might not necessarily have, have thought they could get into the industry uh, or might have been excluded before, as you said, can suddenly feel that they can, they can sort of they can get involved from where they are. They can, there aren't any barriers. 
And I think it's a, a really interesting case in point, isn't it? A bit like making podcasts, a little bit more, a bit, a little bit like um, um, writing and, and collaborating in that way. These hugely collaborative jobs, uh, hugely collaborative organisations, are the ones that really get how to do this um, and are, are really sort of leaping in. Zoe and I have talked about all sorts of different industries and the way they're approaching it, and, and some of, some of the things that we've heard back from other industries where they're, they're sort of mandating two, three days in the office or two, three days at home. It doesn't seem like that approach will, will, will work or, or even cut it in the games industry. No, and I, I think, you know, there might be some companies that attempt to take that approach. And, you know, we, we completely understand that there are different ways of making games, you know, and, and there are huge, enormously complicated AAA games where, probably do need people in the office a bit more to be able to you know if you've got a 900 person team working on a single game there's probably more room there for actually having lots of people in the office to go and work on things but you know if I'm, I'm speaking from my experience you know in terms of UK we went from being a space where you know um, we were all in every day you know sort of nine to five thirty all in the office all the time we're totally we're totally hybrid now completely make your own choice about what works i come into the office a few days a week because i like to meet journalists I like to go and say hello to people you know i do do sort of face-to-face meetings which I guess is part of part and parcel of being in communications right but then other people you know i see them once every three months in person and, and everything else is done over video and you know i think in terms of what that's meant for us as an organization we now have staff spread across the country and considering the uk games industry is itself spread across the country with about you know something in the region of about 60 percent of our game development jobs based outside of london it's actually helping us make sure that we've got people spread in the areas where people are making games so you know it, we can be the national trade body more effectively as a result of taking this approach so i think that's that's really interesting in terms of the way that the, the future of work is structured for us but potentially also for the industry um, can I change tack a little bit? And we've talked about careers there. We've talked about professional development. And I'd love to uh, touch on the subject of, of leadership. Um, so for all those charity CEOs out there and, uh, who have started playing Wordle, um, what are those lessons that you think that leaders can learn from gaming that they can apply in their, their working lives? That's a really good question. I think there's a few things that the industry does particularly well that, you know, I think do apply in terms of if, if leaders are thinking about how their organizations can operate really effectively, there, there are probably a few things that really stand out. So I think the first is really unlocking the full value of digital, you know, so why is the games industry so much bigger now than film, TV, music? And the answer is, is because it mastered digital distribution earlier than everyone else. And it's done so in terms of, you know, selling products. So I have realistically seen teams of four develop a great game, get it to market, and then raise so much money by selling it instantly, exporting around the world. You know, the average UK game developer, because they're selling their games on storefronts like Steam available worldwide, their revenue, 85% of it comes globally. So, you know, instantly you're transformed into an exporter and you can make a huge amount of money because you're able to tap into all of these markets across the world. I think the idea of looking towards the value of being properly digitally engaged, I think that that's really, really key. Um, and I think especially with charities, because I know how challenging the last few years have been, especially with the loss of loads of physical fundraisers, for example, because of COVID restrictions, right? And so a huge amount of my job incidentally had been speaking to about 
I, I estimate about 60 to 100 charities over the last two years, talking about how you can integrate into games in terms of fundraising. You know, you can integrate into Twitch streams through some for a tool called Tiltify and influencers can raise money for you, or you can work with a game developer to sell an in-game item and raise funds there and they can be really effective. So I would say looking at that kind of digital scale, I think is really important. But I'd say the other thing, and, and this is something that, that really sort of strikes home with charities as well, is community. You know, I've, I've mentioned Tiltify. I was really lucky to speak at an event they ran in central London a few weeks ago where they, they spoke to about 40 charities and I was in the room chatting to them. And, you know, they were asking me about what's one of the things that people don't necessarily get about games, but it's really important to know. And it's this idea that actually, even around single player games, you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, in some cases, millions of fans talking about them. You know, they're on social media. They have set up a Discord channel with their mates to go and talk about these things, to go and play games together. Companies run official Discords as well, which are basically sort of online voice forums. So you can jump in with players and go and play your favorite game and talk about things. And actually, when you look at these communities, the whole way that they function is about they find that common interest, they bond, and then they go off and live their lives, right? You know, you hear about these communities generating friendships. You hear about weddings that have occurred from people who've met in Final Fantasy Online. Um, but especially, you know, talking about the charity side of things, these communities regularly decide that there are causes that are close to their heart. It could be something general. It could be something like, you know, people are thinking about their mental health post-pandemic and that community comes together to do something about it. Or it could be that someone within that community is suffering. You know, there's, there's someone in there who's been dealing with a tragedy in their life or an illness. And those communities will often come together and pull, pull around that person to go and support them potentially, you know, again, through things like fundraising, if not just by being there for that person. And so I think it's about almost, you know, looking at that and disarming some of your, um, you know, prejudices perhaps around games about this being quite a solitary act activity and instead looking at what the industry's done in terms of building those communities and keeping them held together because it's really hard to do. It's hard to get a community at scale and then moderate and manage it. But if you look at what the biggest games companies are doing, especially through their community managers, you get a huge amount of best practice on how you manage communities like one to many. And I think that's something that I think leaders in charities but, but in wider industry can definitely benefit from learning about. Definitely. There's so many interesting lessons there, I think, about product development and scalability uh, and thinking beyond your traditional market, as well as what the community that charity engenders looks like. And it's so interesting what you were saying about Discord, because there's a couple of charities we've been working with recently uh, where they've been talking about using Discord in a way that I just don't think they would have been doing even six months ago. Uh, and one of them is quite a traditional organisation. Uh, so absolutely, I think that really strikes a chord with what you were saying earlier about, well, what does this community look like? And what do I as a leader need to be aware of in how I lead that and how I manage it? Yeah, totally. And I, I think being willing to experiment, you know, some things will work, some things won't work. But I, I think, again, that's, that's one of the things that's really fun about working in this industry. And, you know, I kind of think back as an example of that, as a sort of a good leadership kind of, I don't know, sort of anecdote story was um, there was a game called Overcooked that came to real prominence. And, you know, it, it went on, became a BAFTA award winning video game, sold millions of copies around the world. But at the time, you know, Ollie and Phil, who were making the game, they were making it up in Cambridge and they'd come up with this really convoluted idea for how you were going to have these really detailed in-game recipe books where you were going to go and do this, that and the other. 
Anyway, they went off to a small family festival in Norwich. They went and showed the game and they realized how much two people struggled to make a basic onion soup by just chopping up onions and putting them in the pot without arguing, that they just realized that actually all of those complex ideas, cut it back, just go for the dead simple idea. And they created basically, you know, one of the decades major hit multiplayer games by just looking at things and stripping it back. But the whole thing is, is that, you know, with, with the games industry and with games generally, they are places where you get to try things out without consequence. You know, you go and do something, if it doesn't work, doesn't matter you reload you know you try again might be a bit annoying but hey that's that's the way these things work and i think with the industry it's often about you know the phrase that's used in game development is about finding the fun and the only way you find the fun is by testing you know you go out there you pop pop something out it might work it might not but you give it a go you change it if that works fantastic if it doesn't try again and i think there's that element of thinking about that from a charity perspective and thinking about these new tools saying they may not work for you first time out. They may not work for you immediately. But if you keep trying and you keep experimenting, you're probably going to find the thing that works for you and you could really benefit from that. So, yeah, that's another thing to take forward. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because post-launch, I guess, if you've, if you've worked for two years on making a film, you put the film out into cinemas, you get the critical response to it, but the film is the film is the film. You know, you can't go back and change it. Although <laughs> if, you're, um, if you're the makers of Blade Runner, you might go back and try and change it again and again and again until somebody decides that you've made the definitive version but i really the really thing i really like about the games industry is that really close proximity post-launch between the developers and their community the active players where it feels like if you make enough noise or the community makes enough suggestion and check about change that they want to see that does start to come through pretty quickly as well um there's the instance at the moment of um, the community around uh the latest halo game sort of stamping their feet and saying you told us we were going to get new content we're not getting new content and then saying it's coming it's coming it's coming but having that conversation which i think is lost from a lot of organizations that sort of seem to be behind four walls we can't talk to them we can't get the feedback we can't get uh, our thoughts through to the people that it matters in it's that close proximity and that that desire to change i think is is just fantastic within the industry yeah definitely and i think you know games are fantastic i love them but the industry so many get released it's quite a brutal industry in a sense and if mm-hmm. if you release the game and it's not what your players are hoping for you know they, they have plenty of other options right you know it's it's not going to be the case of oh there might be a few games here or there it's like they literally will have tens of thousands of other games to pick from so if you've got those players you really need to listen to them but the flip side to that is that if you do that exactly as you're saying you know you can really change the way that people think about your game and come to love it you know even if you didn't necessarily have that moment that you hoped for i think the great example of that is no man's sky you know when that launched must have been about six years ago now you know it was seen as a little bit disappointing at the moment that it launched because it promised you this entire universe that you could play in and players were a bit like well, it's a bit empty there's not really much you could do in here but the developers who are based in Guildford uh, called Hello Games, you know, they really took this to heart because they had genuinely been trying to make this amazing experience. So they set about building on top of the game because it sold enough copies that they were like, you know what, we're just going to invest. We're just going to put loads of updates in. We're going to keep putting things in, keep serving our community. We're going to add everything from pets to um, crafting to being able to fly these massive super starships or whatever. We, we're just going to throw the kitchen sink at it. 
And then last week, they won the BAFTA for Best Evolving Game, uh, which is an award given for the game that's over a period of time made the most progress. You know, it's like this idea that games are no longer products, they're more like shops and services. And, you know, they were awarded for that, for the work that they've done over the last year in particular. And, you know, I think that's just a really sort of strong idea about this sense of, and this is something as well that I advise about people who are working in the games industry anyway, is persist with it. You know, don't expect it to be necessarily quick or easy results. But if you're willing to invest the time and effort and you're willing to engage with the community around it, you can see these fantastic things can take place. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something that a lot of business can learn from, which is actually, you know, don't give the community carte blanche. You know, you need to make sure that you're, you're still being careful about protecting your staff and making sure that people who are being, say, abusive are not getting their voices heard. But when the community is genuinely passionately engaged and is giving you useful feedback, don't be afraid to listen to it because it can have great results. Perfect. And just one last question on the, on, the, on the fundraising side of things. You said you've had conversations with almost 100 leaders from the charity sector. What are the two biggest questions they're asking you? First question is, what do I do in games? And I know that sounds like a remarkably broad question, but I, I think, you know, and this goes back to something I said earlier, the games industry can be a little bit closed. And, you know, I'd say this is one of my, my personal criticisms of it is that sometimes we can be so protective of how a game is made, you know, and, you know, the secrets behind it, that we, we can forget that actually you need to talk to people about this so that they understand what's going on. So the first question they ask is, is that thing about how do we just simply get involved? And, you know, the answers to those questions are pretty straightforward. You know, first of all, make sure you're using services like Tiltify, setting up as a charity on there. So any streamer who just is streaming their games on the internet is thinking, you know what, I want to do some charity fundraising. They can go and find your cause and go and get going with it. You know, that's a really important starting point because that gives you something that you can mobilize your community around. But also go and speak to game developers, you know, go to go to games conferences and go and find people to talk to because often, you know, with this idea of shifting towards a service or a shop, you need new things to sell. You need new reasons to bring players back and you need reasons to engage your community. And the idea of doing like a charity fundraiser, you know, by selling an in-game item, for example, if you buy this card during these two weeks period of time, all of the profits go to charity, can be really effective. And if you approach those companies early enough, they're mostly nice people. You know, they're looking for, for reasons to do good. So to go and do that. And then the very final one is to go and look at the services like Humble Bundle where if you can mobilize developers to come together for your cause, you know, whether you do it as a charity or if you get a consultant to come and help you out, these services allow you to sell, say, 20 great games for just £10. And every time someone buys them, all of the money goes to the charity. And, you know, there's, there's been some fantastic ones recently, like for the Ukraine, uh, for the DEC Relief Fund, where I think the Humble Bundle is raising millions and millions of pounds. And Fortnite, for example, did, did an in-game activation, which I think the story I was looking at said it was 37 million quid in the first week was raised for it. So real potential value there. So that was the first question, just what can I do? And then I think the second question was about, but how do, how do I make any of that work? And I think, you know, I appreciate, you know, I've been wishing on for a while, so I'll try and keep this one fairly short. But I think the biggest one is just be authentic. You know, get people within your team who like games and get people within your team who can speak authentically about it to go and chat to those people. You know, I think one of the reasons as well for slight industry defensiveness is that we can see the people who look at us and just see the dollar signs. And it's like, 
we're, no, we're not that kind of industry. It's people who love making games. They're creative types. That's, that's the reason why they're doing this is they want to bring people joy and entertainment. And yes, it's a business, but it's that thing first. So if what you're doing is just approaching with someone clearly having like, you know, the, the, the sort of proverbial dollar signs popping up, that's not going to work. But you have someone who turns up who's just like, I genuinely love games. You know, it's just like the kind of person who turns up an event and starts being like immediately infused. However deeply they go into it, it really does make a difference. And so I think it's just going up to businesses and being interested in what they're doing, interested in how they operate, and then being like, how can we help? You know, I think in, in general, it's a really sort of constructive, open industry. Um, so taking that kind of approach can deliver real returns. Perfect. I just had one last question. We also talked about the the sort of the role of games within the development of social behaviour in society. So um, you talked about one instance. I don't know whether this is a one-off instance or a regular occurrence, but an instance of um, communities, gaming communities, recognising calls for calls for help. Um, obviously, with with the the pandemic coming along, lots of people were going flooding to games. Lots of that was online. Lots of discussion about who kids are interacting with and, and, and how they are communicating and talking through these platforms. But you mentioned um, one uh, one instance of, of, of a cry for help being recognised and any hints and tips you can give uh, those of us with uh, small children about recognising some of those signs and, 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 and looking out for them. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think that the example that I was thinking about is actually, I've got to be honest, it was a great charity campaign. Um, so it's from the campaign against living miserably and there's someone who we worked with at the outset of the pandemic to go and do some work in terms of games and mental health because you know we were worried about people being alone but one of the things is they, they developed a really quick affinity with the industry because mental health is definitely you know if I, if I was talking about what are the industry's key social priorities mental health is right up there um, and I think they understood that and engaged really well with companies and they did this fantastic campaign um, which only launched actually towards the end of last year where it's a video of a, of a streamer playing a game called Subnautica and it's just playing the game it's about one minute and 40 seconds of them talking over the top of it and then they go go back to the beginning and rewatch it and listen out for this and it's basically listening out and he's basically giving you the cues at one minute 40 or so into this video these are the things that are under, underlying where you can see hear him going yeah I'm, I'm actually you know you listen to him playing and, and speaking he goes yeah i'm not okay you know I'm, I'm really struggling at the moment you can hear those things that you weren't really paying attention to and you get back to that point in the video and then you just carry on and then it goes to that that really important call for action to go and say someone might be having trouble if you you can spot these signs if you need help go and visit the Khan's resource and i thought that was just a really powerful impactful campaign and i think the reason why it worked so well is because you know, in terms of going into communities and in terms of having those moments, you know, I know this just even from my own experience, having played in online communities and being in those conversations with friends where it's a bit like, are you all right? You know, are you okay? You know, it sounds like you're having a bit of a tough time. You know, do you just want to jump on and play some Mario Kart for a bit, right? You know, and it's like, it was something that was so authentically rooted in the experience of so many people who play games that I think it was just a perfect encapsulation of the kind of thing that you know, you can do in terms of understanding the value of games and in terms of understanding them as a space where they can be that place where you socialize, where you unwind, where you interact. And so going into that that point about parents and looking at it. So, you know, I, I help with Yuki run our um, parental advice site, askaboutgames.com. And there's loads of advice on there about safe and sensible play. But I think the main things are 
first of all, look at the good side. You know, actually, a lot of the time, I think parents see their, their children put their headsets on and go, well, they're, they're shutting the world out. They're doing the opposite. They're talking with their friends. Like, they're not allowed out to the park as much anymore, partly due to COVID, partly due to people being worried about the park being safe. So they're hanging out in digital spaces and they're almost certainly doing it with their friends. You know, Ofcom did some research into this recently and found like 75% of children playing online are playing with their friends. So that's your first starting point. Second thing is just to be a bit like, this is a space for them to learn. You know, it's a space for them to build up that kind of resilience in the same way you know, you're not going to be happy if your kid has a little bit of a scrape or a little bit of an altercation in a park, you know, a little bit of verbal argy-bargy with someone. Like, that's not what you're hoping for in life. But you know that if it's just a little bit, it's okay, right? And kids online will experience a little bit of this, but they're actually remarkably good at dealing with it. You know, we did some research with Digital Schoolhouse, our education initiative, that found that children who played online games were much better at activating online safety features than those who didn't. You know, they knew about how to use mute. They knew how to block people. So let them go and learn in that space too, because actually that gives them the digital literacy and the skills to go and deal with the challenges they face. But then the final thing is just make sure that they know that you're there. Because a lot of the time, if it gets to something that is serious, kids go and talk to their parents about it. They really do. Again, the digital schoolhouse research found that when kids had experienced anything like that, they would go and tell their parents about it. But parents who are engaged in games, who are talking to them, who are interested, it's going to make it much, much easier to have those conversations where an area of concern appears. And that might be when someone's feeling upset and feeling maybe alone and using games as a kind of a way to escape that. But equally, it might just be they've experienced something nasty online they need to talk about. By being engaged, it means that you allow them to go and have that space where they interact with friends, they pick up those digital skills and that resilience. But then at the end of it, if they know they need help, you're there. So that, that, that's it. And, and we, we run our Get Smart About Play campaign, which is all about encouraging and empowering parents to think like that. So yeah, to totally think that's the best way to approach it. Thank you. That was great, George. I really, really like that. And um, it's given me a lot to think about as a parent as well. Lots of really great stuff. Maybe I should start playing some games with my kids. Yeah, totally. Go to the Family Game Database. That's another one of our resources. Um, it's got cool. loads and loads of recommendations for, for really good family games, including a whole list about you've never played games before. Here's where you start. Oh, amazing. Thank you. I'll take a look at that. Definitely. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend Elden Ring as a starting point. <laughs> <laughs> Don't start there. And there ends my final validation as, as a gamer. It's as, as a gamer and a parent, and I have a vital role to play, so I should just continue playing, right? 100%, yeah, exactly. Get involved. <laughs> well, thank you very much, George. Thank you very much for your time today. Absolutely fine. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you to George for joining us on Starts at the Top. A really interesting discussion. Um, and now, Zoe, we've got to go because I've got to go and game. <laughs> before we do that Paul as usual please leave us your feedback if you use a podcast app where you can rate and review please do that it really does help people find us otherwise you can share your plans ideas or questions with us on twitter we're at at starts at the top one or you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com and we'll see you in a couple of weeks <laughs> <laughs>